all just kick back and talk about our Christmas season. We have different kinds of stories, especially as adults. But if we talked about our Christmases as kids, I bet there would be a lot of similarities. Because as kids, there's just one disposition that you have during Christmas, and that is you want it to come. You're anxious about it coming. When is Christmas going to be here? And it sort of seems like forever coming once you get into December. And maybe in your family you would count off the days and have one of those little calendars. I don't know. Did you have one of those? Maybe you have one of those now. We had one of those. And you count down the days as a child. But as adults, you're like, oh, my goodness. It's, it's coming. Christmas is almost here. It's coming so fast. And the kids say, it's coming so slow. Right? You're thinking, oh, my goodness, it's upon us. It's two or three weeks out, right? When you're thinking about it now, like, oh, it's going to take forever. In fact, it was interesting. Last night I was driving with my uh, uh, 11, almost 12-year-old, and that's exactly what she said. I, Christmas is just so far away. It's just not coming fast enough, right? There's that spirit of anticipation. Christmas around the corner. I remember I'd go in. We always go to my uh, grandparents on Christmas Eve night. And even Christmas Eve day seems to go so long. And then for whatever reason, the big table, they chose back then to use real plates, china. And you had to wash all the plates for some reason before you could get to the gift. And it took forever for them to wash those dishes. Isn't that weird how you still have that sort of sentiment of that going on? Now, a little bit of confession time here. It's Christmas, right? I mean, how many of you, when you were a kid, went and tried to find your presents before Christmas? Right? Do that? Yeah, see, some of you Oh my gosh, it doesn't matter what age you're at. You were trying to do it. And you would sneak around and try to find where mom and dad or somebody put the presents. Now, a little bit more confession. How many of you found them? All right. A little deeper confession. How many of you actually pulled them out and started playing with them? Yeah, all right. There you go. There you go. And for you real rebels, you problem troublemakers, how many of you actually found them? Pulled them out, started playing with them, and you broke them. Then what do you do? (laughs) Go back, and then you open them on Christmas Day, and you're like, oh, it's broke. What is it? I actually was one of those kinds of people. I didn't break any toys, but I I knew sort of where the presents were, and sometimes I would go and sneak, and hopefully they were wrapped. Those kinds That's the best ways to do it because the biggest deal was to try to count how many presents you had versus your brothers and sisters. That was sort of my deal. Like, hey, is it equal out or not, or what's the deal? But I remember one time that I found them, and they had not been wrapped yet. And so you discovered what they were, and then when time came to open them, I realized it's very hard to fake surprise when you've already seen it, right? And it just sort of numbed the whole doll, the whole Christmas experience, so I stopped doing it, I think, after that year. But capture that sense of anticipation, anticipation. Anticipation, because anticipation in many ways is what makes Christmas Christmas. You're longing, you're hoping. And here's one of the the, the important deals that you know that Christmas is going to come with absolute 
certainty, that expectation. And you get all kinds of things that fly around Facebook these kinds of days. And yesterday I got, I got uh, uh, tricked by one of my friends from earlier years and a little bit younger than me that grew up in a young adult group together. And he never got married but got married later on in life to another person I knew that was sort of cool. And, and uh, th they uh, have this cool marriage down in the south. And they posted this. They said, well, it's official. I have some amazing but shocking news. We're expecting, whoo -hoo, a little over three weeks and counting. I know we're shocked too. We can hardly believe it ourselves. We weren't going to post it, but since we're all friends and family, we wanted to make it Facebook official. We're too overwhelmed to keep it a secret. Who would have guessed that of all people we would be expecting, but we are. We are expecting Santa in just two weeks. Copy and paste if you have a sense of humor. Let's see how many people read the whole status. I'm so excited. Captures that sense of anticipation, expectation. But you know that Santa's going to come in that traditional sense. And Christmas is going to arrive. But you know that 2,000 years ago, people were seeking and longing and anticipating something that they had been doing their whole life. And not only for their whole life, but for generations upon generations upon generations upon generations upon generations and more. People with a sense of anticipation, it's coming to happen uh, today. And they would get up every day thinking that today could be the day when this will happen. And then what were they expecting and what were they looking for? Well, the Jewish people People in Israel were looking for a Messiah. And they had the spirit of expectation that they carried with them that someday, maybe today, possibly it could happen. The command of God that was given to them. Thousands and thousands of years prior, it could come again. But here's what it said, 99.999% of the people who had that anticipation feeling, they died, and they never saw the Son of God. Christmas never happened for them. Now you tell me, if that had been occurring for generations upon generations upon generations, what would be the disposition of your soul? What if every year for Christmas, there was this anticipation that the Christmas day was going to come, you're going to have some gifts and unwrap them, and then it came and it never happened. Once you over a time become not just disbelieving, but jaded, maybe even cynical, you say, why do we do this? Why do we get our hopes up? Why do we anticipate something that never comes about? They would pray and they would wait. They would remain faithful, but it would not come. Well, today as we sort of begin a little bit of a mini Christmas series, I guess. I want to introduce you to two people. And if you have your Bibles, you can follow along. We're going to look at the Gospel of, of Luke. But Matthew, Mark, Luke, Luke chapter 1, we're going to read that in a second. But this is how it ties in with us this morning. I think Christians and non-Christians here this morning are like, at some point in our Christian experience or even in our seeking experience of God, God can be so quiet, so inactive, and so seemingly silent 
that there will be times in our lives when we look around and we say to ourselves, why am I doing this? Where's God? Where's the promises? When's this whole thing going to pan out? When's it going to happen? And so, you know, I don't become disbelieving, become jaded and cynical, and we think to ourselves, why do I keep on living this way? Why do I keep showing up? Why do I keep being faithful? Why do I continue to serve? Why do I continue to give? Why do I continue to, 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 side, to read and study and to try to hope and to learn more? God's just so distant. God, I know he's there. But maybe you're not a believer in God or a follower of Christ this morning, and you can well identify with that disposition. But maybe you're a Christian, and you're in a year, season of life, a period of time, where God is distant, he's silent, he's far, far away. What do you do? What do you do in those moments? But here's, here's generations upon generations upon generations of God followers, and they were not getting any encouragement. In fact, there had been silence that had gone on. Well, let's look at this story, and it begins in Luke. Chapter 1, verse 5. In the time of Herod, and that would be Herod, the guy who killed the baby, um, as we know the story later on, king of Judea, there was a priest named Zechariah who belonged to the priestly division of Abijah. And his wife, Elizabeth, was, all, was also a descendant of Aaron. Now, what this means is that both Zechariah and Elizabeth, they were from a long priestly line in Israel. And what does that mean? It basically means that they were preacher's kids, pastor's kids. But not only were they pastor's kids, they were uh, grandkids of pastors and their great-grandfather and their great-great-grandfather. And on down the line, you had this whole lineage of people who had been longing and anticipating for this great hope to arrive, their Messiah. And so they were in that lineage. And each of them, from one generation to the next, would have this anticipation. They belonged to that line. It goes on. Both of them were righteous in the sight of God. Now, what does righteous mean? That means they did what was right. These were really, really good people. They did what was right in God's sight, observing all of the Lord's commands. Everyone, and if you read through the Old Testament, I mean, there's, there's a lot of them. And so these individuals, this couple was described as upright, godly, of the priestly line. They had been around ministry generation upon generation, believing in this. And then what does it say? And they followed the commands of God and decrees blamelessly. That means if you vetted them, if you got a secret agent to try to spy out on their life, you couldn't find anything wrong. They were blameless in how they lived and they followed and they pursued God. Now, if you lived that kind of lifestyle and if you had done it for years, you would think that it would pay off. You would think that God owes you one. You ever feel that way? Good God, what am I doing? I'm living for you. I am seeking to be blameless, right? Now, we may say, oh, I fall sort of fall short here and there. I understand that. But you're like, where's God at? God, show up. 
Yet the two up to that day, day after day after day, they remained faithful, but they had not seen God operate that much, not only in their life, but also in their nature. Why? Verse one, verse seven says this, but they were childless because Elizabeth was not able to conceive. She was not able to conceive. Now, let me be frank and clear about this. I know culturally things sort of change decade from decade and century to century. But in that day, um, the men would work. They would be engaged. They were part of the priesthood. They led. Women, um, they were not given those opportunities or privileges in part, and I think there's a beauty of that day, in part because they highly respected the home and being able to nurture children. That wasn't, hey, that's the woman's place is in the home. It was the woman's place is in the home, so we need to uphold that and protect that. So how valuable is that to raise from one generation to the next? But the women, they if they did not conceive, they were not only looked down upon culturally, it was perceived that there was a curse of God upon their life. And so here's Elizabeth having lived faithfully and blamelessly before God all these years from this, this lineage, and she could not conceive. And in those days, you didn't have it medically understood that well, and so it was perceived as whose problem? The woman's problem. It was the woman's problem for why there's no conception and there's no children in this home. And so she lived underneath that burden for years. But yet what? She remained faithful. And they were both well advanced, she and he. So she was no spring chick, right? It was over. It was too late. God had not done anything for them lately. As a couple, as a nation. We find out uh, later on in their story that they prayed. They prayed the desperate prayer that any couple prays when they don't have a child. And uh, God has said no. She lived in this pain and this shame uh, all the way into her older years. Now, what I'd like to do is do a little bit of a, an Old Testament survey um, to, to cast the picture for this in a broader dimension, understanding the faithfulness of God. So I'm going to give you this Old Testament inter, uh, uh, survey. The entire faithfulness of God was actually based on a promise to Abraham 2,000 years uh, before uh, they were alive. So that's why I'm saying one generation, one generation, one generation. This goes back a long time. And the promise comes out of Genesis. Genesis chapter 12. God came and he spoke this to Abraham. He said, I will make you into a great nation. Okay? And that, that sort of happened. We know that there's a nation of Israel now based upon going back to Abraham. Right? And I will bless you, and I will make your name great. Most of us in this room probably say, well, that came true, right? Because we know the name of Abraham, right? So that one checked off. God was good. But that was 4,000 years ago from today that that happened, right? What about the other part? And you will be a blessing, and I will bless those who bless you. And for a while that happened in Israel. And I will curse those who curse you, 
still trying to figure that one out. And all peoples, all peoples on earth will be blessed through you. The you being who? Abraham. So Abraham, he got his tongue 2,000 years prior to Zechariah and Elizabeth, and, and they held on to that promise that God would bless them as a nation. And this is where Israel gets its, its sense of specialness, if I can say that, that God is going to use us in a big-time way. is because he made this promise, and he made Abraham's name great. He made them into a nation. But what about the blessing, and what about the influence in all the earth? Would that happen? Would that be understood rightly or not? You see, you can go back all the way to what happened then with Abraham. Is Abraham, he finally had a son, and his son had a son, and then his son had a lot of sons, and then they ended up in Egypt, and in Egypt they sort of got coalesced as a nation, and then they had the exodus from Egypt, and they came into their own, their promised land, right? And eventually that grew into the opportunity for them to have a king by the name of David, and David had this, what was referred to in Israel as the golden age. And then David's son Solomon and, and, and the temple being built. And you would think if there was ever a time when this passage was going to come to fruition and they were going to experience Christmas, it would be David and Solomon. But then something happened in the life of the nation of Israel. They split into two kingdoms. They split into two kingdoms and they started being taken over from one generation to the next. In fact, between the time of Solomon and Zechariah and Elizabeth, did you know that, that Israel was, was taken over and exchanged and, and trampled on by different enemies by 25 different sets of people? There were Syrians captured them, and then the Babylonians. Then you had the Greeks and then the Romans. They, they weren't some great, glorious kingdom, and God came to fulfill all this and bless all people. They sort of became this itty-bitty, uh, run-of-the-muck, dusty kind of trampled-on little empire. Who do you think you are? Just totally disregarded. And even more in modern history, what happened to Israel, and you think in terms of the Holocaust and all that happened with that. Friends, the, the vision for these people that claim Israel as a nation has been decimated for thousands of years. And here they are after a strong period of silence from Scripture when God has not spoken. And they are doing what? They are living righteously. They're upright. And they're blameless. And there they are one more day again, being faithful to God, anticipating a Messiah, believing the promises that were given long ago. Were they going to happen? Were they going to happen? What would you tell to them? You know, the final big-time blow came in 65 B.C. when Pompey the Great, Pompey the Great sort of conquered them and came into Jerusalem. And the heart of Jerusalem, the heart of who they are as a nation, was the temple. The temple had the outer court and the holy place. And then inside the holy place was the holy of holies. And the high priest, only the high priest, was allowed into the holy of holies one time a year. And if you went in there in an unrighteous, sinful kind of state or a flippant kind of state, you could die in the Holy of Holies. Pompey the Great comes in. He marches through the temple. They're all gathered. He marches right past all the priests. He marches right up and he walks into the Holy of Holies. 
you look around the holy hole, throws the curtain back quiet, walks back out, and he's just talking to God. Son, not just because he walked into the holy of holies, this Roman general, but that he didn't get killed. happened before in ancient days. People died. You would think God would kill the Roman guy. Come on. Like a terrorist will walk in there. Deal with it, God. Come on. And after that day, you could be guaranteed this. A lot of people started to believe that it was no longer the God of Israel, Yahweh, that it was the God of Roman people. And many people Following that desecration of the temple time, they figure, oh, I'm done. I'm done. Where's God? This ain't happening. Christmas ain't coming. It ain't happening. Where's Messiah? So they walked away, and they got assimilated into the Greek life, and they got assimilated into the Roman life, and that was their lot, but not. Not Zachariah. You see, when Pompey the Great walked in, Zachariah would have been a little kid. I don't know how old he would have been. But he was a little kid, and his dad was one of the priests. Can you imagine his dad coming home that day after the desecration of the temple? His dad just sits down weeping and crying and rips his clothes, just crying out to God, what's going on? Little Zachariah saw that. And he could have done something as a young boy. What could he have done? Yeah. Forget God. God doesn't show up. And he could have walked away as well. Zechariah didn't do that. As a young boy, he ended up growing up and taking on that priestly lineage. And he, too, became a priest in spite of all that was happening around him. But don't you think that it would have been okay if you were a friend to walk up to him and say, hey, guys, Joseph Zachariah, this ain't going to happen. It's all a myth. It's not going to happen. Yeah, part of Abraham's, you know, promise came true. The nation thing. Yeah, we're, we're a nation now. And his name's great, but that whole thing of all peoples on earth being blessed through us, you know, it's just it's not going to happen. Just walk away. We're just a itty, bitty, dusty little part of the Roman Empire, and there's really no hope. I think it's because of this that Luke begins his story the way that he begins his story. This chapter 1. As I said, he's capturing the spirit of disbelief, disenchantment. He's capturing a downtrodden heart that's even cynical, jaded, and not believing that God's ever going to do what he said. But I said earlier that I believe all of us can identify with this because we find ourselves in those places, periods, or seasons where God is inactive We wonder if God is listening. We wonder, does God really care? Maybe you're there this morning. Well, if you are, I want to go back to our Luke story now and talk to you about the hope 
the thrill of hope that comes from that place. Because God did not disappoint his people. That day did come. And this is how Luke records it, verse 8. Once when Zechariah's division was on duty and he was serving as a high priest before God, he was chosen by lot. That means they sort of, um, uh, they didn't draw straws, I don't know what they did, they sort of gambled. According to the custom of the, uh, custom of the priesthood, to go into the temple of the Lord and burn incense. So essentially there's, there's uh, something like 23 different groups, all right, of priests. And they would cast lots and basically decide who would get to go into this, not the Holy of Holies, but the very place uh, next to it and offer the incense. And my, uh, my guy, Zachariah's dad, he finally came and he got to So like, whoa. And it could sometimes happen only once in a lifetime for one of the priests. And so he stands right outside the Holy of Holies where God dwells and everybody else vacates that part of the temple. And he offers incense to God. And it's a very sacred, sacred occasion, solemn, and it's an honor to be chosen. And and so he took it very seriously. It says this then. And when the time came, when the time for the burning of the incense came, all the assembled worshipers were praying outside. So he's in there by himself, right? Then an angel of the Lord appeared to him, standing at the right side of the altar of incense. So he's in there doing his thing, doing he's being the pastor, doing what's responsible, and he's moving along with, with his uh, routine. And then all of a sudden, this angel appears to him. And the angel says what angels always say in Scripture. You ever notice this? They always say, do not be afraid. Do not be afraid, Zechariah. And why? Because this isn't, I'm sorry, the kids' program was great last week if you were here and what they did. But I sort of thought, you know, we had the angels over here. And oh, they were so dainty and they were so pretty. They were so cute. And, and, and the wings on them. That's not the angel you would see. If you watch the AD series, remember the angel of the Lord that came with that with the sword of friends. When the Bible angels show up, it's a scary experience. It's not like, oh, okay. So if I say, hey, I saw an angel of the Lord. Oh, really? You know, let's hit our knees. Don't be afraid. <laughs> angel says the same thing to Mary when she goes, don't be afraid. And so Zechariah's like, oh, my goodness. What's happening here? As he's burning the incense. And the angel appears. He says, don't be afraid. And he says, I love this. He says, your prayer has been heard. How would you like an angel to show up in your life and tell you that? I would. I don't even need God to answer the prayer. I would just like to know, did you hear it? Or is it bouncing off the ceiling? Is it going out into cyberspace? Where is it going? But he shows up and he says to Zechariah, he says, you know, I have heard your prayer. Can you imagine how many times he would have prayed over and over and over and over again, wondering, does God hear my prayer as I cry out? And the angel appears and says, I've heard your prayer. I've heard your prayer. Now, I don't know about you or how you would respond in that way, but Zechariah, and my goodness, he was fearful and he wanted, and he was he was blameless, guys. He's not like some of us, right? You know, it's like if an angel appeared to me, I'm like, oh my gosh, I'd start repenting. I'm sorry I did this, I'm sorry I did that. But he stands there. In the fear, he's calm with the fear. The angel speaks into his life based upon his expectation, his anticipation, and his faithfulness endured through all the years. And he says this. He says this. When Zechariah saw him, he was startled and he was gripped with fear. 
But the angel said to him, do not be afraid because your prayer has been heard, right? And then it says this in verse 18, your prayer has been heard. Your wife, Elizabeth, will bear you a son. And you are to call him John. And John's going to become famous, isn't he? He's going to be John the Baptist. And he is going to go before God. It says this, verse 14. He will be a joy and a delight to you. And many will rejoice because of his birth. For he will be great in the sight of the Lord. He is never to take wine or other fermented drink. And he will be filled with the Holy Spirit even before he is born. You know, I had to tamp that whole passage a little bit this week. Because I'm thinking, what kind of angel tells you that the child is going to come forth in your womb? And some of you right now are wondering if your kid's ever going to make it or not. Trust me, God has no plan. That's why they were born into this world. But can you think of the endearment Elizabeth would have had in having this word? He will be a joy and a delight to you. Many will rejoice over his birth. The Holy Spirit is going to be in him before he's born. <laughs> a lot of times we think of John the Baptist as some a little bit of a maniac out of some kind of thing. But he was born into a priestly line. He grew up in church. And he was the Holy Spirit was in him. And he was to be the one who was the forerunner of proclaiming the Messiah's ministry when he started. God knew what he was doing. Verse 16, many of the people of Israel will he bring back to the Lord their God. And that's what he exactly did in his ministry. He went out calling out to the people, repent and believe in God. You who have left, you who have been assimilated in these other lives, come back to God, come back to God. God is about to work. That's why John would have to bring them back because they had gotten disenchanted and they had walked away. Verse 17, and he will go on before the Lord in the spirit and the power of Elijah to turn the hearts of the parents to their children and the disobedient to the wisdom of the righteous to make ready a people prepared for the Lord. And then look at this. Zechariah asked the angel, how can I be sure of this? <laughs> That's an honest question. How can I be sure of this? And then he sort of gets diplomatic. He says, uh, I am an old man. And then he pauses, and he's a smart guy. He thinks to himself, and he says, and my wife is uh, well along in years. Because they, they write this kind of stuff down. I'm like, well, actually, that's better say it because. So Gabriel hears this. And he, of course, he knows what's going on in their hearts. My wife is well along in years. In other words, he's saying, okay, I'm with you. I'm really glad that you've heard my prayers, but I'm thinking you're a little late, angel. Don't you think? You see, we start praying in our 20s for a child, and then we kept praying in our 30s. And then for good sake, we continued to pray through our 40s and into our 50s. And now... You mean to show up and tell me this? He says, what do you mean? How do you know this is going to happen, right? And then the angel just said to him in verse 19, 
I am Gabriel. It's almost like, hello, I'm an angel standing right here before you. We're having a problem at Christmas. I'm right here. I am Gabriel. I stand in the presence of God, and I have been sent to speak to you and to tell you this good news. And now you will be silent and not able to speak until the day this happens, because you did not believe my words, which will come true. And then this is the key phrase. At their appointed time. Can you say that with me? At their appointed time. Wait, 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 wait. You mean... You mean through all these years, God had a special day marked on his calendar for this to happen? You mean all these, it's like 700 years since, you know, the glory days of David and Solomon. God has waited this long for this purpose, but now is the appointed time? Yes, God has an appointed time. And some of you are waiting patiently for something in your life you feel that God promised you. There is an appointed time. God is still there. He's not left you. He's not vacated you. You need not get jaded. You continue to be faithful. You continue to live righteous, a blameless life, seeking God. God's favor is on your life. Maybe not playing its way out as you might intend, but you need to understand this. God does not break his promises to those who are faithful unto him. And so we continue on with that journey. God is not quiet. He is not inactive always. He hasn't lost interest in us. No, it's the appointed time. And verse 21 says this. Meanwhile, the people were waiting for Zechariah and wondering why he stayed so long in the temple. When he came out, he could not speak to them. They realized he had seen a vision in the temple. For he kept making signs to them, but he remained unable to speak. When his time of service was completed, he returned home. After this, his wife Elizabeth became pregnant and for five months remained in seclusion. The Lord has done this for me, she said. In these days, he has shown his favor and has what? Taken away my disgrace among the people. What a weekend. Confirmation confirmation that you're not crazy confirmation that you're not wrong confirmation that you're not abandoned some of you need to know that today you're not crazy you've not been in the wrong you've not been abandoned but this was uh, this was just sort of the warm up time Luke puts it there Tying into all these years of history. This is the warm-up act that God was faithful to Zechariah and Elizabeth and that that forth the prophecy that Elijah would come before Jesus was fulfilled in John the Baptist as he turned people's hearts back towards God. But that was all like the preliminary band, right? That wasn't the real concert. That was the concert before the real concert. Because the real concert comes right on the heels of that then. In verse 26, in the sixth month of Elizabeth's pregnancy, so she was six months along, God sent the angel Gabriel to Nazareth, a town in Galilee, to a virgin pledged to be married to him, married to a man named Joseph, a descendant of David. The virgin's name was Mary. 
so the Christmas story goes forward as we more commonly identify the Christmas story. But there was the story before the Christmas story that brings us hope and encouragement today concerning our need to remain faithful to God. But in one sense, their story is like our story. It's like a dilemma that we have. Do we stay or do we go? Do we believe or do we stop believing? Do we serve or do we just go do something else? Do we give or do we just spend things on the here and now life like this is all that matters? Do we stay engaged? Do we stay in that difficult marriage or just do what everybody else is doing? Do we do that shady business deal or do we maintain our integrity? I've been there, if you have too, where I've wondered, why do I continue on this path? Why do I continue on even being in ministry? Sometimes I've asked that. It's not because I don't see God working, but sometimes you just wonder if everything's going to play the way out that you hope it would be. And there's easier ways to go. If you're at one of those places, I want to encourage you that God will remain faithful to you. He remained faithful to Simon. That anticipation as a child that you have, don't lose it. Don't lose it. Don't allow the weariness of life to beat you down. Because I tell you what, in every generation, there is a remnant of Christians that decide that they will not walk away, but that they will remain true and they will continue to seek God and they will find his promises to be true. If not in this life, definitely in the life to come when the Lord Jesus Christ returns again. The challenge is, will you and I be a part of the remnant? The challenge is, will we be like Zechariah and Elizabeth and remain faithful? And if we've never crossed the line of faith and the decision comes to us, you know, will we make that choice to trust God and what he said from his scriptures and to believe in him? Even this day in this decadent age when we see a lot of turmoil and challenges. The story of Christmas is a reminder that your faith has hope in God, not in circumstances. God is a God who keeps his promises. Where is your faith and hope placed? There's a couple Christmas hymns I want to give our reference to as we close. The first, we'll sing it on Christmas Eve. We'll actually sing both these on Christmas Eve is O Holy Night. O Holy Night says, O Holy Night, the stars are brightly shining. It is the night of our dear Savior's birth. Long lay the world in sin and error pining. Did you catch that phrase? Long lay the world. Before Zechariah and Elizabeth, before Christ's entrance into the world, and even now, the world lies in sin and error. And pining, pining is a word we don't, pining means uh, laboring, waiting, praying, longing, longing that God would do something, save this world. I heard from another friend this week, and, and their cry out was like, Jesus, just come again. I'm concerned for my kids in this world. 
there's sometimes that sense of despair when we see what goes on around us. And it's not around the world, it's locally in our own county like a couple weeks ago. It's amazing how the adversary can take evil and bring corruption and brokenness and we hurt and we get tired, weary, laboring in the weakness. Long lay the world in sin and error pining till he appeared and the soul felt its bliss. A thrill of hope. A thrill of hope the weary world replaces. See yonder break of daybreak. Glory to God. Second Christmas hymn was one a couple nights ago, and I just started singing it because I, I think that we just need to sing it. Sing it a cappella. Found a Chris Tommy album where they sing it a cappella. I'm going to put the words up here, and I want you to sing it. It's a fellow hymn. Some of you know it. We sing it. Come thou long expected Jesus. Come thou long. 